0: listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense. Discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Alrighty, here we go, back with another episode. Welcome everyone to The Maniculum Podcast. My name is Zoe Franznick and I am here with my co-host, Mac.
1: Hi, I'm Mac. It may sound different than normal because I have a new microphone. Ooh,
0: so exciting. Oh yeah, you got it set up.
1: Yep, I've been meaning to get a new one for a while, but I kept putting it off because I'm poor. And then suddenly someone Zoe knew, I forget who, had a spare. Zoe's brother.
0: (laughs) He had a spare.
1: Had a spare and sent me one. So hopefully those of you who have noted that my audio quality is low will be appeased. Although personally, I never noticed a difference, so I think you might just not like my voice, oh dear, so if you still think that there's a problem, I think I think it's me, not the microphone.
0: <laughs> no, don't say that, although I will say that my partner is so astute at noticing when. Like, the FPS on his computer goes down, and I'm over here, like, playing the video game, like, oh, this is great. And he's like, this isn't running at the right speed. And I'm over here, he's like, there's a cat on my screen. (laughs) I'm just having fun. (laughs) But anyway, anyway, we are the hosts of the Maniculum Podcast, where we take weird and wacky medieval texts, and we teach you how to turn those texts into cool D&D modules, characters and so on and so forth. So we get into the context of medieval culture, we also get into the theory and understanding of how to put good games together. So we hope you enjoy. We hope you dive in with us and come out learning something new we do have our patreon our discord if you want to get involved please jump onto our discord it's a fun place we have good conversations there we also have our instagram our twitter all of our usual social media accounts our facebook so feel free to connect with us we love having an interactive audience because otherwise it's just us talking back and forth to ourselves about weird medieval so yeah yeah come get involved
1: yeah, it's, it's good to know that we're not just shouting into the void.
0: That's true. Anyway. Anyway. What are we throwing into the void today?
1: Well, so a while ago, I picked up this little book here that says on the spine, Aucassin and Nicolette, etc.
0: Ooh, a classic.
1: Yes. And what it is, is it's a collection of romances and such translated from the Old French one of which is the titular Aucassin and Nicolette, which I have not read yet, so we're not doing today.
0: Oh, okay. Fair enough. I read it, but it was a while ago. I would need a refresher.
1: All right, good. I, I, I would hope that once we get to it, you will have forgotten enough to be surprised, like I am with Ail Saga. Oh, I'm sure. This is, by the way, for anyone who wants to look it up, official title of this book is Aucassin and Nicolette and Other Medieval Romances and Legends, translated from the French by Eugene Mason. Or possibly Maison.
0: We're going to botch so many names this week.
1: This is public domain now. It was first put out in like the very early 20th century. You can actually find the full text on Project Gutenberg if you feel like following along.
0: Very nice. We'll link it in the blog as
1: usual. Which also means that I can just read it directly instead of having to summarize, which is always great.
0: Until you get into the really verbose, antiquated language.
1: Yes, which there is a lot of.
0: All right. So, what among these other stories are we reading?
1: Okay. So, my original intent was I was going to like read a story and then go over like criticism and essays on that story, oh. and then another episode and read another story and do the same. And then I went looking for essays. Oh no. And there aren't any.
0: There aren't any. I mean, but it's Aucassin and Nicolette.
1: There are some on Akkasan and Nicolette.
0: But none of these other smaller ones.
1: None of the other ones.
0: <gasps> oh, no.
1: And, like, I'm not sure if they're just too obscure, if maybe they have other titles that people write about them under, if they're just not of scholarly interest, or if, since they're all translated from French, maybe all the criticism is being done in French publications.
0: Ah, uh, of course, that would... That one seems like the most likely to me, Yeah, but you never know. It's weird how this works, because if there hasn't been a lot of research done on a particular thing in the past, there won't be a lot done on it in the future, unless some quote unquote big name academic Mm -hmm. discovers it and writes something amazing about it, which is weird because you would think that when you don't have something that's covered, it's like the final frontier. It's vast and open, and you can be the first one to get out there, which I always think is really, really cool. But for some reason, academics like to sit on top of previously discussed topics and continue the dialogue, which of course is interesting, but at a certain point, you're referencing papers from two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, and then 50 years ago, and it feels like everything has been said, or you're just saying the same things over and over again, or it's the same debate back and forth and back and forth and back and forth.
1: Yes. Yeah, there there are a lot of stories, apparently, that just nothing's been said. And I think part of that is that stuff that there is a lot of criticism on will attract more attention as a result of that. For sure. And it's so it's kind of a positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm.
0: Precisely. Which is a shame. Yeah. Especially because when you're in our academic system nowadays, if you're, for instance, doing an MA or a PhD, you want to pick something or advisors will tell you to pick something that has a lot already written about it that you can reference, which seems like the opposite of what you would want to do to me. But I remember being pushed very strongly for things that already had a bunch written on so that I could reference those and learn from those, even though I maybe wanted to get into like marginalia or things that didn't have a lot written about it. Mm -hmm. And I I never understood that. But eh, maybe I'll save that for my PhD and go that direction.
1: Well, it's cuz you need to have something to do your lit review on.
0: Uh, lit reviews. Original research. I want original research. <laughs> this is why the arts are not succeeding like STEM is. It's because nobody's doing anything original these days. Okay. I'll get off my I thought little pulpit. It was pulpit. the funding thing. Well, yeah, but original research also tends to get funding.
1: Ish. Does it? I mean, if you can't use it to kill foreigners, does anything really oh, get funding?
0: That's that's fair. Alas.
1: Did I tell you that one of the uh that the ground floor of the old English building on at Purdue all the English classrooms were taken out and replaced with offices from other departments?
0: Other departments? Yeah. We don't they don't even have enough room for an English department. I know. So where did those go?
1: Well the now uh, composition classes are taught in just whatever room happens to be empty at the time. So it's kind of scattered around. Disgusting. But the reason I thought of that is because one of the old English Composition Classrooms now has like special privacy glass in the door window and is labeled Homeland Security.
0: Oh my gosh, this makes me sad for the state of the arts. Yep. A shame, truly. Anyway.
1: Yes, anyway, let's get to these old French stories. So the first one I have here, and we might tell more than one since, again, my original plan was to bring in some essays, but there weren't any. So we might have space for like two or three. The first one is the story of King Constant, the emperor.
0: Ooh, King Constant. So give us a little framework on these, if you have it. Are these about the same time period as Marie de France's work? Are these chivalric in nature? Are they more moralistic in nature, like the Gesta Romanorum?
1: They are a bit moralistic. They are of the romance tradition. They're around the same time period as Perlis actually.
0: Okay, okay.
1: The... Introduction introduces them as mostly from the 13th century.
0: Gotcha. Hopefully with fewer decapitations.
1: Yes. Yeah, some of them are like parables, like kind of like the Gesta Romanorum, and some of them are just like stories that you might find in, tales. in, in the romance tradition.
0: Yes, makes sense. So think of fairy tales. These are like early, early fairy tales.
1: Yeah, and it is in many ways similar to the Gesta Romanorum in kind of what they're doing. Like, they're just entertainment with some moralizing thrown in, and that's, like, it. Except the Gesta Romanorum is written in Latin and mostly circulating around Central Europe, whereas these were written in French in France. Yep.
0: Awesome. Let's jump right in. All
1: right. So, the story of King Constant the Emperor. Now telleth the tale that once upon a time there lived an emperor of Byzantium. The which town is now called Constantinople. But in ancient days it was called Byzantium. In days long since, there reigned in this city an emperor. A paynim he was, that's P-A-Y-N-I-M, it's a generic term for non-Christian but implies Muslim.
0: Ah, understood.
1: Kind of like saying heathen.
0: Makes sense. Or barbarian from the Greek perspective.
1: And was held to be a great clerk in the laws of his religion. He was learned in a science called astronomy, and knew the courses of the stars, the planets, and the moon. Moreover, in the stars, he read many marvels. You look like you want to say something.
0: Only that I already want to tie in that this is a science, art, and witchcraft all wrapped in one. So in the context of this tale already bringing up one, a non-Christian, possibly a Muslim, who Mm -hmm. does astronomy or astrology... The two were essentially the same thing at this point. We're already getting ties to dark magic and necromancy. And some of you may think that this this is me jumping the gun. And I totally understand why you would think that. However, given the context and the time, especially with how medieval European individuals looked at the Middle East and their science and their knowledge, they all looked at that and said, no, 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 that's all... Muslim science, that's all Muslim knowledge. Therefore, it must be bad. It must be evil because they're not Christian. It's literally as simple as that. And then later, as you got through into the later Middle Ages around this time, learned scholars started very slowly understanding that, oh, maybe we can use this art in a Christian manner. So I'm very Mm -hmm. excited to see where he goes with this. And whether, whether we get more of a sciency perspective or a divination perspective and magic perspective or where this is going to go. All
1: right, let's find out. So in the stars, he read many marvels. He had knowledge of many things which the Paynims study deeply and had faith in divinations and in the answers of the evil one. Oh, hey! That is to say, the adversary.
0: Did I call it or did I call it?
1: Yeah, you called it. So yeah, he's uh, using the stars to talk to the devil. He knew besides much of enchantments and sorceries as many a pain him doth to this very day. So yeah, so he basically called it.
0: <laughs> We're starting with tropes that we know well.
1: Yes, yes, yeah, it's, it's a stock character. Now it chants the Emperor Musilin, which I guess is his name. All right. It's it's like Musili, the breakfast food, but with an in at the end.
0: <laughs> nice, I like it.
1: Actually, I think it might not be because I think that's M-U-E and this is M-U-S-E.
0: Either way. So we got muesli. Mueslim.
1: Emperor Porridge.
0: (laughs) Oh, Lord. We're, We're now stuck with this, aren't we? Yeah. All right,
1: let's go. He fared forth one night, he and a certain lord of his together, and went their ways about this city of Constantinople, and the moon shone very clear. They heard a Christian woman, travailing of child, cry aloud as they passed before her house. But the husband of this dame was set in the terrace upon his roof, and now he prayed God to deliver her from her peril, and again he prayed that she might not be delivered.
0: Hang on, just to track with this. There's a woman giving birth, Mm -hmm. and this guy is on his roof praying that she might be delivered from her pain, but not deliver the child? There's a lot of delivering going on here.
1: Yeah, basically... He's saying, oh, let my wife give birth. Wait, not, don't let my wife give, give birth. Don't let my wife give birth. Okay, now let my wife give birth. now uh, he keeps going back and forth.
0: Okay, yes. He's not quite sure when is the best time for her to safely deliver this child. Mm-hmm. Understood.
1: When the emperor had listened to his words for a long time, he said to the knight, which I guess is the same as the person who was a lord in the previous sentence, <laughs> Have you heard this caitiff? When I look this one up, it means a contemptible person.
0: Ah, yes, of course, because he's a Christian.
1: Yes, it's it's, uh, C-A-I-T-I-F, by the way. Who prays now that his wife may not be delivered of her child, and again that she may be delivered. Surely he is viler than any thief, for every man should show pity to woman, and the greater pity to her in pain with child. But may Mahound, which I believe is supposed to be uh, Mohammed, and Termagant, which I think is just a demon. All right. I'm going to Google that, actually, because I know I've heard that word before.
0: I thought of tarragon, but that is an herb.
1: That is an herb. Okay, I'm getting a lot of Warhammer 40k (laughs) answers. Echoes in modern culture! What is it? (laughs) In Warhammer 40k, it is a type of tyranid, tyranid, however you say that. Zerg, basically. Warhammer zerg.
0: And what is a zerg for those of us uninitiated with Warhammer?
1: Oh, well, zerg are from Starcraft. Oh, Lord. (laughs) how to describe they're like animalistic aliens that breed really quickly in a bunch of different forms and kind of have inborn biotechnology so that they're spacefaring and a threat to like developed cultures but they themselves only have animalistic instincts
0: so they're like sci-fi orcs
1: yes except warhammer also actually has orcs and they're mushrooms
0: orcs are mushrooms yes you are blowing my mind that's really cool
1: Yeah, there's actually a lot of cool stuff in the Warhammer 40k canon. Yeah, it's it's pretty well developed. I've never actually played the game, but I've read a bunch of the books.
0: So we can assume that he's appealing to this Warhammer 40k race,
1: clearly. Yes, but just in case that's not accurate, I'm going to go grab the OED and see if it has anything to say.
0: Yes, let's go.
1: All right, there's like half a page on this.
0: Oh, hey, we got something. All right, because I couldn't find
2: anything.
1: It looks like, usually, it just means a quarrelsome or overbearing person, especially a woman. But all of that derives from the original definition. Quote, an imaginary deity held in medieval Christendom to be worshipped by Muslims. So basically, they made up a god and claimed that the Muslims worshipped it. And that god is Termagant.
0: Termagant. Yep. That's kind of impressive that they just came up with a god. I want to know where that originated, but I I think that's probably lost to history.
1: It was probably just, like, one of those games of telephone. You know, like how, uh, Baphomet.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Yeah, which is now, like, one of the names for Satan. was just, like, a series of mistransliterations from Mohammed.
0: That that checks out.
1: You can tell because they have, like, the same vowel sounds, but everything else got mixed up. Also, while flipping through the pages to find this, I learned that there is a word, testamentiferous.
0: What is testamentiferous?
1: Well... I actually didn't read the definition, but I can find it again. Bearing the Covenant, as applied to the Ark of the Covenant.
0: So, like, the guys in Indiana Jones were testamentiferous?
1: I think the, the Ark itself is testamentiferous. How else well, like so are you going to hold- use the word? It contains the testament.
0: That's a very specific word.
1: There are a lot of very specific words, especially when... Like that one, it's just throwing a Latin root onto something. That's true. Fair just means bearing. Yeah. All right, I'm going to put this back now. All right. All right, so... May Mahound and Termagant aid me never. If I hang him not by the neck, so he give me not fair reason for this deed, let us now go to him. So basically, he's like, this guy sounds like an asshole. May imaginary deity... Refuse me aid if I don't go hang him, or else find a good reason for this.
2: Makes sense.
0: King is meddling in people's lives.
1: Yeah, fair. So they went, and the emperor spake him thus. Caitiff, tell me truly why thou prayest thy god in this fashion, now that he should deliver thy wife in her labor, and again that she should not be delivered. This I must know. Sire, answered he, I will tell you readily. Truly, I am a clerk, and know much of a science that men call astrology. Oh, no. Now, I don't know if this is significant, but the previous page told us the emperor was learned in a science called astronomy. And I'm not sure if they're making the same distinction that we do today or not.
0: I'm curious to see if there is one.
1: And I also don't know if that distinction was present in the Old French or if it's just the translation. That's also a good question. But he says... I have learned too the courses of the stars and the planets, and thus I knew well that were my wife delivered in that hour when I prayed God to close her womb, then the child must be forever lost, and certainly would he be hanged or drowned or set within the fire. But when I saw the hour was good and the case fair, then I prayed God that she might be delivered, and I cried to him, so that of his mercy he heard my prayer. And now the boy is born to a goodly heritage. Blessed be God and praised be his name. There's a little accent mark over the E to make sure you pronounce it praised rather than praised.
0: Very nice. Gotta have those accents. Okay, so this guy's just like watching in the middle of a meteor shower or whatever. And anytime like a meteor comes down, he's like, okay, she can give birth now. Oh, no, no, now she can't. Or like whenever the moon is covered by clouds or whatever.
1: He's basically trying to uh, reverse engineer astrology. He wants his child to have all the right signs.
0: Yes, which was a thing that they would try to do because different months would give you different qualities or if you were born underneath a comet or if you were born during a thunderstorm or blah, 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 you would have different traits. Mm -hmm. So you would read portents as your kid was born to learn what kind of life they would have. So he he is reverse engineering this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe it's like right at the end of the month and he's like, okay, you have to hold on for another hour. The kid's going to be a Scorpio.
0: (laughs) You know, I could see some women doing that today. I say women because that's the stereotypical thing, but I'm sure there's Zodiac
1: dudes out there. I've met some non-binary people into the Zodiac, but not a lot of male people.
0: Yeah, same actually. Who knows? Maybe it's an Envy thing. Maybe. Let us know, listeners.
1: Yes. I was into the Zodiac, actually, when I was younger, but I was into a lot of occult stuff when I was a kid.
0: Is the Zodiac considered
1: a cult? I mean, is it not? It's kind of like new agey and stuff, and I always lump all that together in my head.
0: That's true. Huh. I guess that's an interesting question, because... <laughs> this is gonna sound hilarious. Growing up I would have parents who were very upset if their kids read Harry Potter, but would still read their horoscope every morning in the newspaper. That
1: does seem deeply contradictory.
0: Absolutely contradictory. But go figure.
1: Yeah. Like for the record, it should be fine to indulge in whatever new agey astrology occulty that you nonsense so that desire. You want. It's silly to try to ban it.
0: Yeah, like if you really like crystals, you do
2: you.
1: Although, now you probably shouldn't buy any Harry Potter stuff, because apparently J.K. Rowling takes her continued success as validation for her (sighs) bigoted views. What
0: a ridiculous, horrible, sad woman. It's a shame, but anyway.
1: Anyway, guy's trying to hack astrology. Now tell me, said the king, to what fair heritage is this child born? Sire, said he, with all my heart. No, sire, of a truth, that the child born in this place shall have to wife the daughter of the emperor of this town, she who was born but eight days since, and shall become emperor and lord of this city and of the whole world.
0: I don't think this is a good thing to be saying.
1: (laughs) Caitiff, cried the emperor, never can it come to pass as thou sayest. I don't think he knows this is the emperor, by the way.
0: Oh, he absolutely doesn't, but that's how these stories go.
1: Sire, answered he, so shall it be seen, and thus behoveth it to be.
0: Like past tense of behoove?
1: Yeah. Behoveth? Behoveth.
0: That sounds like a god too.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds kind of like Jehovah.
0: True. The god of having things come to pass. Behoveth.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> New patron just dropped! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he's he's saying this to the king.
1: Yes. Certus said the emperor, great faith hath he who receives it. Then they went from the house, but the emperor commanded his knight that he should bear away the child in so privy a manner. That's privy as in private, not privy as in toilet.
0: Although they have a very similar root because going to the privy was a privy event.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's etymologically linked. If he were able, that none should see the deed. The knight came again to the house and found two women in the chamber, diligently tending the mother in her bed, but the child was wrapped in linen clothes and was laid upon a stool. Thereupon, the knight entered the room and set hands upon the child and placed him on a certain table used for chess and carried him to the emperor in so secret a fashion that neither nurse nor mother saw aught thereof.
0: He took the child away on a chessboard.
1: Yes, I, I don't know why they mentioned that. Like, is he using the chessboard as like a tray?
0: I think so. Or whatever equivalent game it would have been. I wonder if that's a metaphor. I like it as a metaphor. Like, you know, Game of Life and Two Kingdoms at War. And yeah. you deliver a child upon a chessboard. That's beautiful metaphor right there.
1: Hey, use that in one of your stories.
0: I'm just, I, I might very well. <laughs> I think it's cool.
1: Oh, um, content warning. Violence against children, you may want to skip ahead a little bit. If you're sensitive to that sort of thing. Specifically,
2: skip ahead about 45 seconds.
1: Then the emperor struck the child with a knife, wounding him from the stomach to the navel. Which I feel like is the same place.
0: Pretty much. Maybe it means like the the sternum.
1: Yeah, that would make sense. Down to the navel.
0: On an infant, that's not gonna, like, that's gonna take up a large part of his body.
1: Yeah protesting to the knight that never should son of such a miscreant have his daughter to wife, nor come to sit upon his throne. He would even have plucked the heart from out the breast, but the knight dissuaded him, saying, Ah, sire, for the love of God, what is this thing that you would do? Such a deed becomes you not, and if men heard thereof, great reproach would be yours. Yeah, cutting out the hearts of babies, that's a bad look, fam. Like, (laughs)
0: I will say, for those of you who are familiar with biblical literature, this is very Moses.
1: It, it is a bit Moses. It aligns.
0: Yeah, yeah. But then again, there are many, many stories of the king dislikes the idea of somebody taking over his throne, so he gets rid of the kid. This is also the founding of Rome.
1: Yeah, I feel like so this on is on an so archetype. You've Romulus and Remus, Moses, yep. Mordred. Yep. Yeah, it's it's one of those...
0: We've seen it before, we'll see it again.
1: <laughs> Maybe archetype is the right word. Folklore eems.
0: One might even say hero's journey. If you're familiar with the hero's journey, the hero has to be put without of society. They have to be cast out into exile. And usually you'll see this at the beginning of their life, even before the quote-unquote proper hero's journey begins. This occurs quite a lot in Irish literature when heroes have to go outside of Irish society to be trained and then they come back as heroes. Funnily enough a modern example of this even though it's a very silly rendition of it is um, Guy Ritchie's King Arthur Legend of the Sword where like the child King Arthur was sent off when Camelot was attacked and then he grows up in Londonium in a brothel and then he comes back as a man! A manly man! Because he's This is a Guy Ritchie film, and then comes back and and takes over Camelot again.
1: Right. The moral of the story is that it's great to raise children in a brothel. (laughs) They'll turn out amazing.
0: Take them to the edges of society and raise them there by wild women. I don't know why. That's also a strange trope. Yeah, that that is that these children who are brought to the edges of society are raised either by strange old wizardly men or wild sorcerer women.
1: Something the partial historians pointed out was that it's unclear whether or not the wolf from Romulus and Remus is a literal wolf because a female wolf was also slaying for a prostitute. So she could have been like a woman out on the edges of society or a literal wolf.
0: I like it. I like it. Okay.
1: Okay. So the knight's berating the emperor.
0: Yes, makes sense.
1: Enough have you done, for he is more than dead already. But if it be your pleasure to take further trouble in the matter, give him to me and I will cast him into the sea. Yay, cried the emperor. It's Y-E-A, but if you want to imagine he's (laughs) saying Y-A-Y, like, go ahead. Go for it. Yay, cried the emperor. Throw him into the water, for I hate him too much.
0: I feel like this translation could use some updating,
1: but I'm enjoying (laughs) it. Probably.
0: Yay, I hate him too much.
1: Also, like, again, we're seeing this archetype where like the child is thrown in the water which also happened with Romulus and Remus and Moses and Mordred
0: yep all stories come from the same place yeah eventually whatever that collective unconsciousness thing that Jung decided to go with like whatever that is I'm utterly fascinated by it so listeners if you have any other clues or hints of where that comes from I'm very interested. And I know, like, likely it probably came from a bunch of oral storytelling just coming down. But also I think a lot of these stories kind of came to be or were discovered, quote unquote, at the same time. Just like the concept of zero was discovered across the world at different times by different civilizations. So why can't stories do the same thing? And I'm fascinated by whatever that locus or mythos or whatever is. Yeah. I'm obsessed with it. I think it has something to do with how people perceive magic, but that's for my PhD.
1: <laughs> Are you doing one? I thought you were staying in the gaming industry.
0: Well, I will for now, but I, I do really want to come back to it. Yeah, I we'll guess see. you could do we'll both see how Like, far there's nothing I get.
1: stopping you from going to school part time. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, okay. The knight took the child, wrapped him in a piece of broidered silk I think we'd say embroidered nowadays and went with him towards the water. But on his way, pity came into his heart and he thought within himself that never should newborn babe be drowned by him. So he set him, swathed in the silken cloth, on a warm muck heap. He's gonna catch something from that.
0: That's really not advised. Also, Snow White, that was the other one I couldn't think of. The queen gets rid of... Oh, yeah. The most beautiful child in the land, because the magic mirror told her
1: so. That's true, although she's not an infant at the time, so that's a slightly different.
0: True, true.
1: But But yeah, I think that's... Yeah, there's some resonance.
0: There's something there.
1: Also, guys, don't think too much about why this muck heap is warm. (laughs) So he's making faces now, which was my goal.
0: I wasn't going to say anything, but you did, so it's fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Before the gate of a certain abbey of monks, who at that hour were chanting matins, when the monks kept silence from their singing, they heard the crying of the child. And carried him to the Lord Abbot, who commanded that so fair a boy should be cherished of them. Which is a weird way to phrase it. Because he's like, I can tell that this baby is pretty. This is a pretty baby. And obviously, pretty means good. So we should take care of this child. If he were ugly, we'd just put him back on the muck heap. obviously. (laughs) So they unswathed him from the piece of stuff. Piece of stuff is an interesting (laughs) phrase. (laughs)
0: The <laughs> You mean the embroidered silk?
1: Yes. I, I think it's, it's taken a downgrade from getting filth on it. So now it's no longer impressive. It's just stuff. It's just the stuff now.
0: All right. You know, fair enough.
1: And saw the grisly wound upon his body. But it's okay, because apparently it's not grisly enough to make him not pretty.
0: Did it use the word fair or did it use the word pretty?
1: It said fair.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that just, that's, yeah, it's pretty, handsome, good looking. Yeah. Comely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's either they, they think the baby is, like, good-looking, or this is a skin-tone thing.
0: Yeah, usually it's more of the good-looking...
1: Yeah, that's what I'm assuming.
0: ...sort of thing, yeah.
1: As soon, therefore, as it was day, the abbot sent for physicians, and inquired of them at what cost they would cure the child of his hurt, and they asked of him one hundred pieces of gold. Because these, these are D&D clerics, and they don't do anything for free. Fair enough. They need gold pieces.
0: Well, don't forget, this is presumably a Muslim kingdom as well.
1: That's true. So. Although apparently it's an interfaith kingdom, since there are both Christians and Muslims around.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, since it is an an abbey.
1: Yeah, and the, the parents were Christian. Yeah, true. 100 pieces of gold. But he answered that such a sum was beyond his means, and that the saving of the child would prove too costly. Then he made a bargain with the surgeons... To heal the child of his wound for 80 golden pieces. And afterwards, he brought him to the font. That's baptismal font, not like Helvetica. (laughs) I know no one had that confusion, but... I like it. Thank you. And caused him to be named Costant. That's C-O-U-S-T-A-N-T. It's printed in small caps, so apparently it's important. Because of his costing the abbey so great a sum to be made whole. That's a... Move. Yeah, he basically was like, fixing you is expensive, so we're gonna name you expensive. That's your name.
0: That's like naming your kid after a, an insurance company or a hospital. Yeah.
1: Gonna name you Healthcare Bill.
0: <laughs> yeah, for real. Baylor Scott, you get back here. <laughs> oh <my God.
1: laughs> there probably is a kid out there named that, you know. That's rough. Sorry, Baylor. <laughs> While the doc- er, sorry, not while, whilst the doctors were about this business, the abbot sought out a healthy nurse in whose breast the infant lay till he was healed of his hurt. I, I think this is nurse as in wet nurse, not uh, uh, another like a- cleric. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which, by the way, this was something that was fairly common at this time. Wealthy families could afford finding local mothers who would be able to nurse their children so that either the mother could take a break or she wouldn't have to nurse the child or you know whatever but that was fairly common
1: mm-hmm. a healthy nurse in whose breast the infant lay till he was healed of his hurt for his flesh was soft and tender and the knife wound grew together quickly because as we all know babies are very physically resilient they might be i don't know i don't know for babies
0: i mean they kind of are like a lot of the ways that we prevent allergies in children now is by exposing them to different allergens so that their body adapts to it. Like one of the reasons that so many kids nowadays have so many peanut allergies in particular is that kids stop being exposed to like peanut dust Because like one kid would be deathly allergic to peanuts in like a kindergarten class. And so the rest of the class was never exposed to peanuts. And so then you'd have kids develop peanut allergies in higher percentages as opposed to other things because they just weren't exposed to peanuts.
1: I didn't know that was how that worked.
0: Yep. Yeah, you can grow out of allergies sort of based on that or you can develop allergies based on that. Yeah, I
1: did know that that you could lose or gain allergies as you age, but I did not know that was why that happened. Anyway, uh, the knife wound grew together quickly, but ever after on his body showed the gash. The child grew in stature, and to great beauty. Because he's pretty. He's pretty and he's good. Of course. When he was seven years old, the abbot put him to school, where he proved so fair a scholar that he passed all his classmates in aptness and knowledge.
0: Put him in the gifted and talented program.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think it's interesting that like they have a school for children in the 13th century. Like, that's something you don't hear a lot about in a lot of medieval literature. So I like the confirmation that such things existed at the time.
0: Definitely. It was probably likely also part of the church itself or part of the monastery.
1: Yeah, those are good.
0: Yeah. Even if they weren't, you know, I guess novices in the church, they would still be living or housed in the monastery itself, likely. Also, I'm going to say it again. The medievals did recognize childhood as its own distinct age. You will often see like clickbait articles saying that like, "Oh, well, don't you know that the medieval people thought that children were just small mini adults." Yep. And it's like, "No, that's <laughs> no, they recognized that children were children." And usually when they're referring to children being small adults, it's in reference to original sin and knowing that, you know, theft is wrong. Like, you know, if Martha takes Samantha's toy, she knows that's wrong, even when she's five years old. That's what it's referring to. It's not referring to like, oh, yes, Martha, you're now seven years old. Please go to the market and do blah, blah, blah. And you're clearly an adult. So if you come against any legal matters and negotiating, you'll be fine. <laughs> it's like, no, they recognize that children were children.
1: <laughs> Except Jesus, who was a small adult, as we learned in our Christmas episode.
0: Yes, clearly.
1: Because he he was a full person as soon as he was born. And therefore, was, he was the also smallest what, the person. The shortest? Yes, the
0: shortest <laughs> he was person the in shortest? history. I hate it so much. And remember, he had a soul from conception, which other infants do not, according to traditional medieval Catholic belief.
1: Ooh, don't tell the Protestants that. Oh, I know. Or even like current Catholics.
0: Current Catholics, I know. Mm hmm. Biblical literacy.
2: <laughs>
1: When he was 12 years of age, the boy had come to marvelous beauty. No fairer could you find in all the land. So the queen from Snow White might come after him after all. Who knows? And when the abbot saw how comely was the lad... It's been a while since I read this in preparation, and I (laughs) forgot just how much emphasis they put on this boy being pretty.
0: (laughs) He's so pretty. So handsome.
1: And when the abbot saw how comely was the lad and how gracious, he caused him to ride in his train when he went abroad. Now, of course, in the modern age, if the abbot says that your 12-year-old is very pretty, that's a red flag. But apparently not in the medieval period.
0: Well, to be fair, he doesn't have any other adults around him.
1: That's true. Now, it chanced the abbot wished to complain to the emperor of a certain wrong that his servants had done to the abbey. So the abbot made ready a rich present, for the abbey and monastery were his vassals, although this emperor was but a Saracen. When the abbot had proffered his goodly gift, the emperor appointed a time, three days thence, to inquire into the matter, when he would lie at a castle of his, some three miles out from the city of Byzantium. On the day fixed by the emperor, the abbot got the horse, with his chaplain, his squire, and his train, and amongst them rose Constant. Alright, so it's said that his name is Constant. But occasionally they call him Constant instead, and he's the title character of the story of King Constant. But it's also made clear that his name is Constant because of the costing thing. So I don't know what's going on there.
0: I think they just decided to, like, mesh the two.
1: Yeah.
0: Like, over the years, it just sort of blended together. I don't That's know. my guess.
1: Amongst them rode Constant, so goodly in every whit that all men praised his exceeding beauty. And said amongst themselves that certainly he came of high peerage. Because he's so pretty, he must be of noble blood.
0: Because that's how that works.
1: Yeah, we know that people of noble blood are always the prettiest, just ask the Habsburgs. Oh gosh. Rip. Of high peerage and would rise to rank and wealth. Again, interesting that they're like, he's so pretty, he's gonna be rich.
0: I mean, those two things are often put
1: together. Yeah, maybe he'll start an OnlyFans.
0: Oh Lord. <laughs> Healthy, wealthy, and wise, folks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thus rode the abbot towards the castle where the emperor lay, and when they met, he greeted him and did him homage. And the emperor bade him to enter within the castle where he would speak with him of his wrong. The abbot bowed before him and answered, Sire, as God wills. The abbot called Constant to him, for the lad carried the prelate's hat of felt, whilst he talked with the emperor. And the emperor gazed upon the varlet, interesting (laughs) words, What is the definition of varlet?
0: Well, it's like a. I thought it was like a a rascal, but hang on. I think
1: that's varmint.
0: Oh, oh, oh. A man or boy acting as an attendant or servant. Also a dishonest or unprincipled man. Oh,
1: so you were right.
0: Yeah. It can be both. You know, like, you know, your squire. It's like how churl became a negative word over time. Yeah, it's one of those
1: classist things where words for poor people just (laughs) become insults.
0: Yeah, precisely.
1: Like villain or idiot.
0: Ta-da! My favorite one of those is actually uh, Nimrod.
1: I thought that was because of Bugs Bunny.
0: It is, but he used it in an insulting way.
1: Yeah, he was using it sarcastically.
0: Precisely. But no one
1: had the uh, mythological background to, to figure out, so they just thought it was a funny word. Yeah.
0: Yep, and it became an insult, even though Nimrod was a mighty hunter.
1: Yeah, which is why he's calling Elmer Fudd that sarcastically. It's like calling a dumb person Einstein. Yep. All right. Anyway, so the varlet. The varlet. Yes. The emperor gazed on the varlet and saw him so comely and winning that never before had he seen so fair a person. Again, the last time they mentioned his age, he was 12. So I don't know what's going on here.
0: He's probably still like 14, 16. It's questionable
1: enough. Yeah. Then he asked who the boy was and the abbot answered that he knew little, save that he was his man and that the abbot... I think that's man, manservant. Yes. And that the Abbey had nourished him from his birth. Quote, And truly were this business of ours finished, I could relate fine marvels concerning him. I haven't heard any of these marvels. Except that, like, he's good in school and very pretty. Like,
0: if That's all you need in this day and age. Were they
1: left out of the story?
0: <laughs> he's, the, he's the scholarship child. He made it to the football team.
1: Also, he was expensive as a baby. Maybe that's the marvel.
0: Oh, well, I guess there is the marvel of him, like, supposed to be dead. Yeah,
1: he surviving, being being stabbed. I I would count that as a marvel. All right, here we go.
0: There's at least one marvel.
1: Yes. Is this so, said the emperor, come now with me to the castle, and there you shall tell me the truth. The emperor returned to the castle, and the abbot was ever at his side, as one who had a heavy business. And he made the best bargain that he might, for the emperor was his lord and suzerain. Which is another... Like, it's just sovereign. Suzerain sovereign. But it's it's a much cooler looking word. We should use it.
0: We should use it.
1: But the matter did not put from the emperor's mind the great beauty of the lad, and he commanded the abbot to bring the varlet before him. So the boy was sent for and came with speed. When Constance stood in the presence, the emperor praised his beauty and said to the abbot that it was a great pity that so fair a child should be a Christian. (laughs) you okay I'm good anything good on your keyboard
0: (laughs) no not this time (laughs) not quite a spit take I mean I've heard I've I've heard stories of like of Christian people saying this heck I've heard stories of like Muslim people Indians you know whatever it's like oh it's a shame that he's not a part of our culture it's a shame that he's not a part of our religion
1: yeah it's a it's it's a dodgy thing to say but I'm sure people still say it oh yeah oh yeah The abbot replied that it was rather a great happiness, for one day he would render to God an unspotted soul. When the emperor heard this thing, he laughed at his folly, (laughs) saying the laws of Christ were of nothing worth, and that hell was the portion of such as put faith in them. So now they're having this, like... Bigot Theological off, spat, where like one of them's like, "Oh, it's a shame he's part of your religion," and those are like, "No, it's good that he's part of our religion and not your religion. No, your religion is wrong, and you're going to hell."
0: And meanwhile, everyone thinks he's pretty, so no matter what religion you're a part of, you're all going to hell for your homophobic thoughts.
1: Are they being homophobic
0: for your gay thoughts? Whatever, they're all going to hell for their gay thoughts.
1: What's that word? It's not, what's the word for like people who are not, not pedophiles, but for like teenagers?
0: Pederasty?
1: Yes, they're going to hell for their pederasty thoughts. Their their thoughts of pederasty.
0: Their thought. Mm yep. I'm
1: not sure that was exactly the word I was reaching for, but it fits.
0: It does fit. Also, something, something, really bad joke about no matter what religion you're a part of, you can still go to hell.
1: That's true.
0: (laughs) Anyway, so they have this lovely little debate about
1: whose club is better. Yes, exactly. Sorely grieved was the abbot when he heard the paynim jest in this fashion, but he dared not to answer as he wished, and spake soft words to him right humbly. Sir, so it pleases the Almighty, such souls are not lost, for, with all sinners, they go to the mercy of the merciful. The emperor, changing the subject, inquired when the boy came to his hands. I I think he just got distracted because he was looking at this pretty boy again.
0: Yes, of course.
1: And the abbot replied that, there we go, here we have an age. Fifteen years before, he was found by night on the muck heap before the abbey door. Our monks heard the wail of a tiny child as they came from chanting matins, so they searched for him and carried him to me. I looked on the child, and he was very fair, so that I bade them to take him to the font and to cherish him duly. He was swathed in a rich stuff of scarlet silk. I like that. A stuff of silk. Very nice. And when he was unwrapped, I saw on his stomach a grievous wound. So I sent for doctors and surgeons and bargained with them to cure him of his hurt for 80 pieces of gold. Afterwards, we baptized him and gave him the name of Constant, because of his costing so great a sum to be made whole.
0: That's so mean. This kid's a teenager. Like, lay off, you guys.
1: Also, they introduced him as Constant, just like earlier this day, so that's just going to confuse everyone. Yet, though he be healed of his wound, never will his body lose the mark of that grisly gash. When the emperor heard this story, he knew well that it was the child whom he had sought to slay and so fell in a fashion. So he prayed the abbot to give the lad to his charge. Then replied the abbot that he would put the matter before his chapter, but that for his own part, the boy should be given to the king very willingly. Never a word for good or evil spake the king. So the abbot took leave, and returned to the monastery, and calling a chapter of his monks, told them that the emperor demanded constant from their hands. "'But I answered that I must speak to you, to know your pleasure therein. Now answer if I have done aright.' "'What, sire, done rightly!' cried the gravest and wisest of all the monks. Evilly and foolishly have you done in not giving him just what he asked at once!' If you will hear our counsel, send constant to him now as he requires, lest he be angry with us, for quickly can he do us much mischief.
0: This checks out.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a reason he's the wisest. He understands self-preservation. True. He's like, no, don't don't antagonize the emperor. He wants the kid. Give him the kid.
0: Give him the kid. Just do it, man. Also, again, this is fairly common in this day and age. You might be familiar with this actually in Aeok Saga, which... I don't think has come out yet, but it's close. No, it it will have come out. It will have come out by now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The tradition of having youngsters, teenagers go off and become a ward of the king so that they can get a better Mm -hmm. education, so on and so forth. This was actually a great honor. So not only was it something to do so that you didn't make the king mad, it's also something that would give that child their best life by all, you know, concerns.
1: You're basically giving the kid a foster father who happens to be a king, so like... Which is a
0: pretty sick gig.
1: Yeah. So while it may seem like they're just handing him over like he's property, and they kind of are, like it is supposed to be for his benefit. Yeah. Like culturally, it's not as sketchy as it sounds to us. Yeah. Since it seemed to all the chapter good that Constant should be sent to the emperor, the abbot bade the prior to go upon this errand, and he obeyed, saying, As God pleases... He got the horse and Constant with him, and, riding to the emperor, greeted him in the name of the abbot and the abbey. Then, taking Constant by the hand, gave him to the emperor formally, in such names and in their stead. The paynim received him as one angered that a nameless man and vagabond must have a king's daughter to wife, and well he thought in his heart to serve him some evil turn.
0: This is coming back up very quickly.
1: I think this was always the Emperor's plan when he asked for the boy.
0: Oh, for sure, but I mean, he received the kid in anger. Like, you're not gonna wait until the monks leave, like, just to be sure, you know, watch him get out the door. Okay. Yeah. He's I the, mean, he is the king. Yeah. Yeah, he can do what he
1: wants. When the Emperor held Constant in his power, he pondered deeply how he might slay him and no man speak a word. I mean, he's, he's the emperor. He could just kill he's him.
0: He's the emperor. That's true. That's true. But no, you I have to have a scheme. Gotta have
1: a scheme. It chanced at this time that the emperor had business which called him to the frontier of his realm, a very long way off, a full 12 days journey. He set forth, carrying constant in his train, yet brooding how to do him to death. Got that <laughs> again. <laughs> I love that phrase. And presently, he caused letters to be written in this wise to the Castellan of Byzantium. In case anyone doesn't know, this is another vocabulary word I took note of. A Castellan is the governor of a castle.
0: That needs to be put in more
1: games. Yeah, I like it does. that.
0: Castellan.
1: thought it was a highly relevant uh, term. So this is the letter being written to the, to the Castellan. I, the Emperor of Byzantium and Lord of Greece... Make him the governor of my city to know that as soon as he shall read this letter, he shall slay or cause to be slain the bearer of this letter forthwith upon the delivery thereof. As your proper body to you is dear, so fail not this command.
0: That is a great threat. As your proper body is to you, dear. Yeah. Like, if you don't do this, you're gonna die next.
1: I'm gonna make it improper.
0: (laughs) I like it. All right. Right on.
1: Also, let's all note that his scheme is tell someone else to kill him, but do it while there's, like, a distance between you.
0: He's a coward.
1: Like, all he's doing is pointing at some lackey and going, like, kill this man. Kill this guy. But he's doing it in an in unnecessarily complicated way. Kings usually do. Such was the letter Constant carried, and little he knew that it was his death he held in hand. He took the warrant, which was closely sealed, and set out upon his way, riding in such manner that in less than fifteen days... So, slowly, since we were told that the furthest extent of this emperor's journey was twelve days away, so such a manner is taking his time... Mm -hmm. He reached Byzantium, the town we now call Constantinople. When the varlet rode through the gate, it was the dinner hour, so, by the will of God, he thought that he would not carry his letter to table, but would wait till men had dined.
0: That's polite.
1: Yeah, right. But we're getting this parenthetical that's saying, like, this wasn't an idea he just had. This was God talking to him. Of, of course.
0: Well, we, we need to have the astrology come correctly. Because yes. that guy put in so much effort to divine his son's birth.
1: Right, so down to the God
0: has to. Yeah, God has to nudge him in the right direction.
1: He came with his horse to the palace garden, and the weather was very hot, for it was near to midsummer day. The plaisance was deep and beautiful. The what? That's what it says. I'm going to Google it.
0: Plaisance.
1: P-L-E-A-S-A-U-N-C-E. All right. Apparently, it means a pleasure ground laid out with shady walks, trees, and shrubs, statuary and ornamental water, a secluded part of a garden.
0: I like that. I want one.
1: That was just Wiktionary, though, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. I didn't feel like getting up again.
0: That's fair.
2: Future Mac here. While editing, I did decide to go back and check the OED, and I found out that while there are several definitions of plaisance, most of them are just variations on the term pleasure, like it's pleasure-giving quality or a source of pleasure. However, definition 5 on the OAD is in fact the one I cited, and interestingly, although all of these came into English from Anglo-Norman, the definition as a secluded part of a garden is actually originally Scottish. I assume it shares the same Anglo-Norman roots, there's no indication that it didn't, but I think it's interesting that that particular definition was originally used in Scotland rather than England. I thought that was worth sharing. Back to the episode.
1: Oh yes, so the plaisance was deep and beautiful, and the lad unbitted his horse, loosened the saddle, and let him graze. Then he threw himself down beneath the shelter of a tree, which is just... its it, That sounds like a very sudden and violent motion, and it does not fit with the rest of this scene.
2: <laughs> I
0: mean, I kind of get it, you know? It's like... You, you get off your horse, and you're like, oh, finally, and you just, like, fall on the grass down the hill. He's frolicking.
1: Fair. So he threw himself down beneath the shelter of a tree, and in that sweet and peaceful place, presently fell sound asleep. Now it happened that when the fair daughter of the emperor had dined, she entered the garden, and with her, four of her maidens. And soon they began to run one after the other in such play as is the want of damsels when alone. So they're also (laughs) frolicking.
0: Damsels, chime in. Do you (laughs) frolic when you're alone? (laughs) I need to know.
1: (laughs) Also, now I wonder of the gender of this author, because this is either a female author or this is a male author who is claiming to know what damsels do when they're alone, which I have to wonder how he knows that. How risque. Playing thus... The fair daughter of the emperor found herself beneath the tree where Constant lay sleeping, and he was flushed as any rose. Yes, sunburn, I guess. Because it's hot out. When the princess saw him, she would not willingly withdraw her eyes, saying to her own heart (laughs) that never in her life had she beheld so comely a person. Then she called to her that one of her companions, who was her closest friend, and made excuses to send the others forth from the garden. The fair maiden took her playfellow by the hand and brought her towards the slumbering youth, saying, Sweet friend, here is rich and hidden treasure.
0: Oh my gosh, this is real creepy. Yep. The creep factor has
1: increased. Certus, never in all my days have I seen so gracious a person. He is the bearer of letters, and right willingly would I learn his news. Which is, of course, the logical response is like, Check out this hot guy. "'This hot guy has a letter. Let's read the letter.'" "'These snoopy girls.'" The two damsels came near the sleeping lad and softly withdrew the letter. When the princess read the warrant, she began to weep very bitterly and said to her companion, "'Certainly this is a heavy matter.'" "'Ah, madam,' said her fellow, "'tell me all the case.'" Which I assume is the equivalent of the tea. (laughs) "'Spill the tea, sis.'" Truly, answered the princess, could I but trust you fully? Such heaviness should soon be turned to joy. This is your best friend. Why do you not trust her?
0: (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, she is a princess. Like, can you really? Yeah. Girls are catty. If you were a princess, would you be able to trust anyone around you?
1: This is something I have no relevant life experience for, so I could not tell you.
0: (laughs) Girls are catty, man.
1: All right. "'Well, you're the one who grew up female, so I'm going to assume that you know this.'
0: "'Oh yeah, yeah.'
1: "'Lady,' replied she, "'surely you may trust me. "'Never will I make known that which you desire to be hid.' "'So that maiden, the daughter of the emperor, "'caused her fellow to pledge faith by all that she held most dear. "'And then she revealed what the letter held. "'And the girl answered her, "'Lady, what would you do herein?' "'I will tell you readily,' said the princess.' I will put within his girdle another letter from my father in place of this, bidding the Castellan to give me as wife to this comely youth.
0: Oh my gosh. I guess I guess she would recognize that this is her dad who wrote this letter.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's got his seal on it. Like she knows oh. that it's his doing. It does seem very sudden that like she's like, Okay, hot guy's gonna die. I know, I'll swap the letter. What should the new letter say? It'll say to make me the wife, this guy. That makes total sense. This is not an impulse decision at all.
0: <laughs> I mean she's probably also 15 yeah, It it did mention oh, yeah.
1: that like they she was only like eight days eight, older than him.
0: Yeah, eight days older, yeah.
1: So yeah, they're both teenagers.
0: It's a regular Romeo and Juliet over here.
1: <laughs> Bidding the Castellan to give me his wife to this comely youth, and to call all the people of this realm to the wedding banquet. For be sure that the youth is loyal and true, and a man of peerage. Girl, how do you know that?
0: Because he's pretty.
1: Yeah, that's it's, it's a fairy tale. He's pretty, so he's good.
0: <laughs> he's gotta be.
1: When the maiden heard this, she said within herself that such a turn were good to play.
0: She's agreeing with this? Oh
1: my gosh. Yeah, she's like, yeah, that sounds like a completely normal thing to do. Go for it. Totally normal. But lady, how may you get the seal of your father to the letter? Very easily, answered the princess. <laughs> Ere my father left for the marches, that's like Borderlands our marches. Yeah. He gave me eight sheets of parchment, sealed at the foot with his seal.
0: Which, by the way, this is normal for this time period. I know that we're mm-hmm. more familiar with like you fold a letter in half and then you stamp it with a pretty seal. But what is traditionally done for more important royal seals and things like that is you'd have a giant wax seal attached to like a tassel at the bottom of a big parchment. So it's like dangling off of the edge and then you roll that up and wrap the seal around it.
1: Yeah. If we're in Byzantium, they're probably lead seals actually.
0: Oh gosh, that's heavy. I guess you wouldn't lose it. But yeah, so this is fairly common. You can actually see... You can Google them, of course. And then there's this cute little museum in Waterford, Ireland that has a whole bunch on display from several of like the English kings. It's really cool. But yeah, they'd be hanging down like tassels. And this also would be done for like exchequers or other lords, so on and so forth. This wasn't just a royal thing. This was just another way of doing it.
2: Yeah,
1: it's, it's just a way to do identity verification in a deeply analog world.
0: Yeah. So if you're wondering, like, How can she come up with a seal? Why is it, like, sitting here on the end of a parchment? That's why.
1: Mm -hmm. Anyway, sealed at the foot with his seal, but with nothing written thereon, and there will I set all that I have told you. Lady, said she, right wisely have you spoken, but lose no time and hasten lest he awake.
0: (laughs) We gotta do this while he's asleep. Let's go. Operation boyfriend mode.
1: I will go now, said the princess. Yes, husband mode. The fair maiden, the daughter of the emperor, went straight to her wedding chest and drew therefrom one of the sealed parchments left her by her father.
0: Oh, she's already got her dowry written out. That makes actual total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, apparently her wedding chest is just where she keeps stuff.
0: Yeah, but it makes sense that it would be her dowry.
1: Well, it actually specifies why she has these. Oh, okay. So that she might borrow monies in his name should occasion arise. Ooh. So this is like the emperor version of leaving 20 bucks for pizza.
0: I was going to go with trust fund, but sure. Well, yes.
1: <laughs> she said that he just gave her these before he left on his trip. Like, this isn't something yeah. that she, like, inherited. This is something he handed her because he was going to be out of town.
0: That's true. That's true. Yeah. Here you go.
1: Pizza money. For always was this king and his people at war with Felon and mighty princes whose frontiers were upon his borders. Thereon she wrote her letter in such manner as this. I, King Porridge, Emperor of... (laughs) You forgot about that, didn't you? (laughs) I did did forget about that. (laughs) Well done. Thank you. Emperor of Greece and of Byzantium the great city, to my Castellan of Byzantium greeting, I command you to give the bearer of this letter to my fair daughter in marriage according to our holy law, for I have heard and am well persuaded that he is of noble descent and right worthy the daughter of a king and moreover at such time grant holiday, and proclaim high festival to all burgesses of the city and throughout my realm. In such fashion, wrote and witnessed the letter of that fair maiden, the daughter of the emperor. So that when her letter was finished, she hastened to the garden, she and her playmate together, and finding Constant yet asleep, placed privily the letter beneath his girdle. A girdle is a belt, by the way, in case any of you are confused. Yes. Then the two girls began to sing, and to make such stir as must needs arouse him. The lad awoke from his slumber, and was all amazed at the beauty of the lady and her companion. They drew near, and the princess gave him gracious greeting, whereupon Constant got to his feet, and returned her salutation right courteously. She inquired of him as to his name and his business, and he answered that he was the bearer of letters from the emperor to the governor of the city, the girl replied that she would bring him at once to the presence of the Castellan. So she took him by the hand and led him within the palace, and all within the hall rose at the girl's approach and did reverence to the lady, the demoiselle. Apparently, we had to go a little French there. Of course. Instead of normal damsel, we're getting like, it's like mademoiselle with the first part cut off. Yes sought after the castellan who was in his chamber, and there she brought the varlet, who held forth his letter, and added thereto the emperor's greeting. The seneschal made much of the lad, kissing his hand, but the maid for her part kissed both letter and seal, as one moved with delight, for it was long since she had learned her father's news. Afterwards she said to the governor that it were well to read the dispatch in council together, and this she said innocently, as one who knew nothing of what was therein.
0: Oh, you should definitely read this letter. It might be urgent from my dad.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly like that. To this the Castellan agreed, so he and the maiden passed to the council chamber alone. Thereupon the girl unfolded the letter and made it known to the governor, and she seemed altogether amazed and distraught as she read. But the Castellan took her to task. Lady, certainly the will of my lord your father must be done. Otherwise will his blame come upon us with a heavy hand.
0: So she's pretending that she's upset. Yes. I like this. I like this. This is a twist I didn't expect.
1: She wants to make sure no one suspects her.
0: Yes. Clever girl.
1: But the girl made answer to this. How then should I be married and my lord and father far away? A strange thing this would be, and certainly will I not be wed. Ah, lady, cried the castellan. What words are these? Your father's letter biddeth you to marry. So give not nay for yea.
0: That's a cool phrase.
1: Yeah. Sire, said the demoiselle, to whom time went heavy till all was done, which is also a good phrase, Mm -hmm. speak you to the lords and dignitaries of this realm, and take counsel together. So they deem that thus it must be, who am I to gainsay them? The castellan approved such modest and becoming words, so he took counsel with the barons, and showed them his letter. And all agreed that the letter must be obeyed, and the commandment of the emperor done. Thus was wedded, according to Paynim ritual, constant, that comely lad, to the fair daughter of the emperor. The marriage feast lasted fifteen days, and all Byzantium kept holiday and high festival. No business was thought of in the city, save that of eating and drinking and making merry. This was all the workmen did.
0: Again, this was fairly common, to the point that an average medieval worker whether they were like farmer, peasant, or merchant, works less than we do currently.
2: Yep, fact.
0: How's that for you? (sniffs) Tough cookies. And they would get like free food from the city in these celebratory things. Like not everybody, obviously. And depending on your stature, you'd get different amounts. But there's something there.
1: You might not be entitled to butter. Alas. But yeah, progress. (laughs) The emperor tarried a long time in the borders of his land. But when his task was ended, he returned towards Byzantium. Whilst he was about two days' journey from the city, there met him a messenger with letters of moment. The king inquired of him as to the news of the capital, and the messenger made answer that there men thought of naught else but drinking and eating and taking their ease, and had so done for a whole fortnight. "'Why is this?' asked the emperor. "'Why, sire, do you not remember?' "'Truly no,' said the emperor, so tell me the reason.' "'Oh, no.' Sire, replied the varlet, you sent to your castellan a certain comely lad, and he bore with him letters from you, commanding that he should be wed to your daughter, the fair princess, since after your death he would be emperor in your stead, for he was a man of lineage, and well worthy so high a bride. But your daughter refused to marry such an one. It actually does say Anne One, which is interesting.
0: I think that's an old phrase. I remember hearing it before, but I couldn't tell you specifically where
1: till the castellan had spoken with the lords. So he showed the council your letter, and they all advised him to carry out your will. When your daughter knew that they were all of one mind, she dared no longer to withstand you, and consented to your purpose. In just such a manner as this was your daughter wedded, and a merrier city than yours could no man wish to see.
0: Oh no, this is not gonna go well.
1: When the emperor heard this thing from the messenger, he marveled beyond measure. And turned it over in his thoughts. So presently he inquired of the varlet how long it was since constant had wedded his daughter and whether he had bedded with her.
0: Oh no is he gonna try to annul the marriage because they haven't consummated it?
1: Apparently. Oh torama Yea, sire answered the varlet and since it is m- I think that's yes they've bedded.
0: Ah well too bad for him okay.
1: And since it is more than three weeks that they were married, perchance one day will she be mother as well as wife.
0: Yeah, without a doubt.
1: <laughs> Truly it were a happy hazard, said the emperor, and since the thing has fallen thus, let me endure it with a smiling face, for nothing else is left to do. Ah. The emperor went on his way until he reached Byzantium, and all the city gave him loyal greeting. Amongst those who came to meet him was the fair princess with her husband Constant so gracious in person that no man was ever goodlier. The emperor, who was a wise prince, made much of both of them, and laid his two hands on their two heads, and held them so for long, for such is the fashion of blessing amongst the pain (laughs) Okay. That night the emperor considered this strange adventure, and how it must have chanced, and so deeply did he think upon it, that well he knew that the game had been played him by his daughter. He did not reproach her, but bade them bring the letter he sent to the governor, and when it was shown him, he read the writing therein, and saw that it was sealed with his very seal, and that the eyes were dotted with hearts.
0: Aww. Of course. I assume. I mean, why not?
1: So, seeing the way in which the thing had come to pass, he said within himself that he had striven against those things which were written in the stars.
0: I like that.
1: After this, the emperor made constant his newly wedded son, a belted knight, and gave and delivered to him his whole realm and heritage after his death. Constant bore himself wisely and well, as became a good knight, bold and chivalrous, and defended the land right well against all its foes. In no long while his lord the emperor died, and was laid in the grave, according to pagan ritual, with great pomp and ceremony. The emperor Constant reigned in his stead, and greatly he loved and honored the abbot who had cherished him, and he made him chancellor of the kingdom. Then, by the advice of the abbot, and according to the will of God the All-Powerful, the Emperor Constant brought his wife to the font, and caused all men of that realm to be converted to the law of Jesus Christ.
0: Of course. It's gotta end in a good good old conversion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Happy endings and forced conversions go together like peanut butter and forced conversions.
0: (laughs) In a series of horrible allergic reactions.
1: Yes. He begot on his wife an heir, whom he christened Constantine, and who became true Christian and a very perfect knight. In his day was the city first called Constantinople, because of Constant his father, who cost the abbey so great a sum. But before then was the city known as Byzantium.
0: Uh, hmm.
1: So endeth in this place the story of King Constant the Emperor.
0: I like it. I like it. That's not how Constantinople got its name. It got it from Constantine.
1: Yes. Who actually wanted to call it New Rome, but everyone just called it Constantine City or Constantinople.
0: Constantinople.
1: Stuff. Yep.
0: That's funny.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's Constantinople, not Byzantium. So if you have a date in Byzantium, she'll be waiting for you in Constantinople.
0: There we go.
1: And why did Byzantium get the works? That's nobody's business except the Romans.
0: <laughs> we need a new version of that song immediately. <laughs> Alright. That's fun. That's fun. It does have a lot of the same elements as the Gesta Romanorum in Yeah, it's got that fairy tale. feeling Yeah. But at the same time, it does have a lot of the same elements as perla's vows so It's like this happy, happy medium.
1: Yeah, it's it's clearly written for like a popular audience.
0: Definitely. And also a trope of this genre in particular is that it has to end happily. Mm-hmm. It must be a comedy. All right.
1: All right. I don't think we actually will have time to do another one because we're already at an hour and a half. Yeah, we
0: are. Okay. So let's go through our segments. But before that, I just, just for kicks, just to see what I can find, I want to look at JSTOR. What is this one called?
1: This is called The Story of King Constant the Emperor.
0: Man, there's nothing. Right? Interesting. Because usually at least something will pop up, you know?
1: Yeah. Huh. And it's not like this is like some niche publication. This is actually um, an Everyman's Library volume.
0: Wow, really? That's like a Penguin classic.
1: So like, they printed a lot of these. They're around. Yeah. It's just that no one's apparently written about them. Or written about them under another name or something.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I can't find anything. Hmm. Anyway, I guess we'll just jump into our segments then. All right, here we go. What say you? Best dialogue. It's gotta be one of those fun phrases. I think for me, it's the threat that the the emperor makes about the other guy's body if he doesn't kill Constantine.
1: As your proper body to you is dear, so fail not this command. Yes. I think my favorite, not because it's good, but because it's evocative in an unfortunate way, is Sweet Friend, Here is Rich and Hidden Treasure.
0: It is. That's very evocative. See, I thought you were going to go with like the the pile of muck or uh, the the thing of stuff.
1: (laughs) I do like that he was covered in a thing of stuff.
0: A thing of stuff. Or do him to death. All good phrases. Yes. We can adapt this for a DD game. How would we use this?
1: Astrology.
0: Astrology, for sure. Your party comes upon a guy who's frantically making a wish and then making the opposite or the inverse of that wish. Mm. And it's either like about the stars or his patron is really wishy washy or something like that. Something like that would be interesting. How would you do that without making your players frustrated at the DM?
1: I think it could be an interesting plot device. Yeah. Maybe they're doing what the father is doing, and there's a child that has to be born at the right time in order to be the child of destiny or something. Ooh. And they have to figure out a way to speed up or delay or, like, in some way manipulate the birth so that it happens exactly right.
0: Yes, I think for that you'd have to base it off of die rolls and checks, mm-hmm. because otherwise, if the DM's just like, "Oh, well, it's the right time." Now it's not the right time. You're just gonna get frustrated.
1: Yeah, it would. It would be stuff like, uh, "It looks like uh, she's going into labor prematurely. How do you deal with this?"
0: Yes, that could be very, very interesting.
1: Or like, "It's time now. How do you figure out what do, do you do?" Enduce? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah
1: like you you'd ha- you'd have to like figure out how to adapt your your character's skills to this kind of unfamiliar to normal D&D play challenge.
0: Yes, yes. I do also really like the idea of reverse engineering some sort of divination spell. Yes. I think reverse engineering any kind of spell would be a hilarious trait for a wizard, particularly because they're so as opposed to a sorcerer, they're so in depth with the magic itself. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, 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 I'm going to reverse engineer how to do this. Or for another twist, maybe your sorcerer is like, eh, I'll figure it out. It'll work because I say it is. Because I say it'll work. And then everyone else in the party is like, that's not how magic works. But it works for him. That could be really interesting.
1: Rolling with the reverse engineering divination thing, you could have a divination specialist whose auguries aren't just like, This thing will go well, or this thing will go poorly. It's like this thing will go well if you do it on the second Tuesday in June,
0: Mm, and making the players keep track of that, or like find a particular event or whatever. Yeah,
1: you you give them like certain conditions that have to be met. Like okay, it'll it'll go like all right if you do it on a Wednesday. It'll go great if you do it on a Thursday. If you do it on a Friday, you'll die.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or I really like what if it's a very small particular thing like, oh, yeah, like this will go great if you do it in the presence of a guy with a mustache or, oh, this will work great if you do it when there are three people wearing red around you or Mm -hmm. whatever, like near the ocean with somebody wearing red. And you just have to drop little hints or maybe you just as you set dress a scene you drop it there yeah. and just see if they pick up on it. And don't add any flair about it. Just, you know, you walk into the market, there are several people around wearing all manner of dress. There's people in red, orange, b- beautiful blue tassels. You just list, list things off and just see if they pick up on it. And they're like, oh, okay, there's, a, there's that guy wearing red and we're close to the ocean. So let's grab that guy and drag him to the ocean so we can do this ritual.
1: Yes.
0: And they have to fulfill the terms of the divination. I think that could be really fun.
1: Ooh, or you could give them, like, one of those traditional prophecies that's, like, when the sun turns dark and cicadas <laughs> sing and, I don't know, a goat walks on its hind legs.
0: Yeah, or whatever.
1: Like, you give, like, a list of portents, and when X, Y, and Z happen, then, and you give some, like, great world-changing event. Like, when this <laughs> happens, the uh, the lost king shall return. Yes. And then you tell them, all right, what you have to do is you have to make all of those portents happen so that the Lost (laughs) King actually returns.
2: That would be
0: amazing.
1: These aren't things that are just going to come about. Like, it's not just telling you. have to do it. At this time, it'll happen. No, these are preconditions. You have to set it up.
0: Yeah. Even better if it's like this weird kooky NPC who Mm -hmm. gives them this divination. And so maybe they're like, this is bullshit. Like, no, we're not doing what this is a side quest, whatever. But if they do happen to go down that path, they get that thing to occur. Then the entire story just shifts. Mm -hmm. That'd be hilarious.
1: Yeah. So yeah, the reverse engineering of divination is a fun thing, I think.
0: Boom. I think that's a good one. Okay, there's got to be more.
1: I like the idea of having them encounter messengers carrying letters who are perhaps taking a break and sleeping Yes,
0: I do like that. So
1: they can do some espionage and maybe change the letters.
0: Yes, I've had that work very well for me in the past.
1: Just throw that out as a, as a random encounter. Ooh, mm-hmm. Do you have stories for us?
0: Oh, gosh. So one of my favorite ways to get the party to collaborate in the first session is I put them all on a boat and then I sink the boat. And so they're all passengers on this ship. And then, you know, a storm erupts and the ship founders. And so then they're all in a scenario where they immediately have to work together. They get stuck on an island. And it's like, okay, you have no choice but to become a party.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: you can throw in NPCs as you like. And so that's my alternative to, you know, you all come together in a tavern. And one of the things I did to seed a plot hook was to have this little messenger kid also be on the boat and be stranded with like a tube of scrolls that he would be, he was like obsessed with having and making sure he had it on him. And so there would be massive debate among the party about whether or not we steal this kid's scroll and can we open it without him finding out? And then once they got it, it was like, okay, do we give it back to him? Do we not? What do we do? I've had it go a couple different ways, either where, they adopt the kid into the party and he loses he loses the scrolls mm-hmm. because they steal it and they never give it back to him, or they decide to give it back to him. It's gone a, a bazillion different ways. And depending on what they choose to do, that of course changes the quest and, and what can occur. Because it's like, oh, well, do we turn in the letter and receive the bounty? Or do we let him do it? Do we escort him to the place to receive the bounty? Blah, 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 blah.
1: So what is on the scroll? Besides, obviously, Obviously, explosive runes, I assume.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh. On the scroll is a letter from one, essentially, city-state to another, containing what is essentially a marriage proposal for them to align and unite. Oh. And so the stakes are such that depending on what you do with it, the two kingdoms can either come together or... One can take it as an insult or it can, it can never arrive and blah, blah, blah. And so depending on where the players have come from, they all have their own political backgrounds and leanings. And it turns out that this one kid carrying a scroll on a ship is the plot hook to a bunch of political intrigue that can go any which way. But he is not the center of the session, the center of that initial session or two sessions, depending on how long it goes, is actually, okay, we're stuck on an island that has magical storms, we have to figure out what the magical storms are caused by so we can get out of here. Mm -hmm. And so he actually just appears like a little NPC, but the plot hook and the letter itself have a vast, vast implication for the rest of the game.
1: That's a very good way to include this like messenger letter thing in a campaign. Yeah. I like it I, a
0: lot. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun and it's fairly easy to do. And what's even more fun is I've got a little like stamp and letter set. Mm-hmm. So when my players get this letter, they have to actually decide to break the seal.
1: Uh, so you do the thing where it's folded.
0: Yes, yes. I do the thing where it's folded for my campaign. But the thing is, is that I've noticed because I've done this in person and handing them the letter and just describing it, you know, theater of the mind. Mm -hmm. And when players are physically handed a letter with an unbroken seal, they are much, much more scared to break it in game. They are much more scared to do that check and fail, which I find is really interesting.
1: Now, is it because, like, are you still making them roll for whether they can, like...
0: Oh, yeah. It's just a prop.
1: Yeah. So you're not like saying like, okay, if you personally can do this, then your character can. Like it's still a role.
0: It's still a role.
1: So it's all in the mind that makes them more worried about it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. There's just something about physically holding it and like knowing that it's sealed, Mm -hmm. and being worried that they won't be able to put it back, that freaks them out. Even though, in-game, it's still a roll. If they want to reseal it, they can roll to reseal it, but for some reason, it wigs them out every single time, and I get so much joy out of it. But I really love using props. I think it creates a much more immersive experience, so it's fun. I enjoy that one. So I'm all for messengers and letters.
1: (laughs) I do a lot of printouts in my games, because... Although I don't currently run any games because I'm burnt out on grad school and life, yes, and I'm yep. a shell of a human being. But in the past, <laughs> I've mostly run games for fellow grad students lately, mm-hmm, like in mm-hmm. the past decade or so. And as you might expect, the first impulse that, uh, that humanities graduate students have when faced with any problem is obviously we should go to the library and do research. yes. And so I always plan for, like, they're go- they're going to go to the library and do research. And so I have printouts of various documents. And those are usually my props.
0: That's amazing. That is so good. Yeah, mine have always split between the arts and science. And so my party would have like the chaos crew who literally they're like, we're going to go and break into a secret drug ring. And meanwhile, the other party simultaneously is sitting in the library garden having tea. <laughs> and so they're both like, one of them is like, we're going to blow shit up. And the other one is like, so we're going over this research. And I was wondering if you knew what this flower was. <sighs> ah, lovely tea. Thank you. <laughs> it's like you guys.
1: I mean, to be fair i've also I've had the same players be both the sources of chaos and the researchers just they, oh yeah, off.
0: they just go back and forth. It's great fun, all right, anything else that we can include?
1: uh, let's see.
0: I think a princess who doesn't give a shit about what her dad does would be yeah. hilarious.
1: I like the scheming princess as a character.
0: Definitely. Especially like if you wanted to make it a PC, that would be hilarious. Especially if you give her six sealed parchments Mm -hmm. that she can just
1: do with as she wills. I think it would be interesting to have like a one shot or a short campaign where the whole party is the princess and her like friends. That
0: would be really fun. The ones that
1: go out and frolic in the garden. And like, (laughs) yeah, they have some kind of adventure that's... Fully contained within the walls of the castle, but the castle's a big place.
0: Yes, or, like, maybe within the walls of the city, and it's like, can they sneak out? Mm -hmm. And they have to make all the the diplomatic checks to sneak around the guards, or to convince, you know, the servants to let them out into the kitchen and out the back door. Yeah. That could be fun.
1: And you present them with stuff that is, like, very YA novel, because, like, these are teenage characters.
0: Yes, Absolutely. The cute servant boy.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) You see him in the garden, plucking,
1: I don't know. Tarragon.
0: Tarragon, what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) He's approached by Wendy, that
1: I feel like for certain players, this would go over very well.
0: I think so. I did see a... um, Pride and Prejudice-inspired TTRPG. So if there's a Pride and Prejudice-inspired TTRPG, there has to be some sort of court-intrigue, YA-styled Princess in the Castle game that would be fun.
1: Yeah, I was briefly surprised when you said that. But then I was like, you know what, I bet there's a lot of overlap between Jane Austen fans and TTRPG fans.
0: Oh, yeah, there's a there are two massive Pride and Prejudice festivals. One of them is set in I think it's Bath, England. And the other one is set in Locust Grove, Kentucky, which is close to where I grew up. And it's the homestead of Meriwether Lewis, as in Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Locust
1: Grove is a great name for a town. I love that.
0: It's a beautiful property. And anyway, they they do a bunch of reenactments. But these two towns, Bath and Locust Grove, compete for the biggest Jane Austen Festival every single year. Like, it's massive. People dress up. They have events.
1: I was going to ask, is this like a comic convention? Like, is there cosplay and stuff?
0: Yes. Yeah. It's like half convention and half reenactment.
1: That sounds kind of cool. Like, I'm really not even cool. into Jane Austen, and that sounds kind of cool.
0: Oh, yeah. I can't stand Pride and Prejudice. I apologize. Actually, I don't apologize. Stick to your own books that you like. I can't stand her. But yes, fight me, listeners. <laughs> 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 I shouldn't say that. Anyway, um, yeah, I would say You might go.
1: actually get an angry email about that one. I totally. might. People love Pride and Prejudice.
0: I can't stand Mr. Darcy, and he was a creep.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm frankly not about any of those like what is it Regency Victorian like era.
0: Oh, Victorian I can do, but Regency I can't. I'm a pretentious person, and I think Jane Austen's writing is pretentious. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I think I think that about covers what we can what we can pull from this one.
1: Yeah, I think that might be it. Oh, well, you could always put the Moses plot hook in.
0: Yes, that's true. That'd be a great background for an NPC or a player character. I'd suggest player character because this could easily turn into a DMPC, which Mm -hmm. you generally don't want to do.
1: Right. Or you could actually have the children, uh, children, players. That's uh, that's an unfortunate (laughs) Freudian slip.
0: You have to leave that in there.
1: I'll I'll leave it in. (laughs) The players, they are like little children and they must be guided.
0: So, you know, sometimes. Anyway.
1: You could actually have the PCs find, like, a baby in the reeds that has some kind of prophecy mm-hmm. about it. And they have to decide what to do. And it's up to you whether you give them any information about prophecies or not. Yep. I like, like that. maybe they just find a baby and it's like, now you have to deal with this baby. Deal with the baby. Or maybe they're aware that there's a, like, Herodian kill all babies thing going on. And they're like, oh, we found a baby. <laughs> Do we? I like that.
0: I like that from, one. From
1: the king. Do we kill it ourselves? Is there a reward?
0: Do we kill it ourselves is the most player-centric phrase.
1: You know someone would suggest this.
0: I know. I just, you know. <laughs> infanticide takes on a whole new meaning in D&D scenarios.
1: I don't think this is a common thing anymore, but when I was first getting into D&D... This seems to date me more than it, it should, because I got into d d when I was like 10. When I first got into D&D, one of the arguments that went around a lot on... Ooh, this is going to date me. <laughs> online message boards. Ah, yes. Uh, for those of you who don't know, they were kind of like Reddit, but less centralized.
0: Are there people who don't know about online message boards?
1: I assume Gen Z is kind of <gasps> ignorant about them.
0: That makes me
1: feel old they're not so much a thing anymore.
0: I guess. Aw, man. Okay.
1: Yeah, I spent, like, my entire middle school years on those things.
0: Yeah. It was, like, before Tumblr blew up.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Huh.
0: Anyway, yes.
1: But anyway, one of the things that was going around on the Wizards of the Coast online message boards in that era was the moral quandary of, is it okay to kill orc babies?
2: Ooh. Because,
1: like, the the monster manual says that they'll grow up to be evil. Because it says always chaotic yeah. evil right there. Yeah. So d- do you kill the orc babies or do you try to, you like, not? raise them to be good?
0: <gasps> and that is why I don't f- with alignment.
1: Yeah, nowadays the whole always chaotic evil, like, orcs and goblins always grow up to be evil. That's no longer a thing. Yep. But that was a thing back in the day. Yep. So there was discussions of infanticide and its moral... Value. (laughs) All right, then.
0: How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? How many ages hence? Let's see. Echoes in modern culture. Well, we already talked about Termagant.
1: Yes, Termagant. I knew there was something that we would brought up earlier.
0: Which is a weird modern relevancy that I didn't expect at all. I don't think there's much else aside from just the trope of, you know, Lost baby becomes hero.
1: Yeah, a lot of these are pretty traditional fairy tale tropes that have shown up in more modern things, like um, the idea of finding a sleeping messenger and changing the message. Mm-hmm. That's that's in a lot of fairy tales. That's in Shakespeare, but in reverse. Because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are carrying mm-hmm. a message and Hamlet switches it out to say, kill the bearer of this message.
0: Ah, that's right.
1: Which is just unnecessarily vindictive because, like, they're, they're not doing anything wrong and they were introduced as his friends. Like, they're...
0: Yeah, but isn't he, like, pretending to be insane or actually insane,
1: depending it's on how really you read it? It's really unclear how much he's pretending, in my opinion. But, <laughs> I don't know. I preferred Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead to Hamlet. Uh... Future Mac here. Upon listening back to that, I realize that that sentence probably doesn't make any sense at all unless you know that quote, "Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead" unquote, is the title of a play from the
2: 1960s. It's pretty good. I recommend it.
0: Fair enough. <laughs> I do enjoy Hamlet. I ended up in so many Shakespeare classes where they all said, oh, you're all familiar with Romeo and Juliet, so we're going to read one of the more mature works, King Lear. So I ended up reading King Lear five times in university and nothing else. (laughs) I hate King Lear so much.
1: When I was, I think, in undergrad, our Shakespeare professor took us to see a performance of Hamlet at the Folger Shakespeare Library, and it was actually really good.
0: Nice. See, that's one of the things I never understand is... Shakespeare is meant to be performed. Mm-hmm. That is the entire like format of the genre.
1: Yeah, I really feel like it's not written to be read.
0: No, absolutely not.
1: But the problem is it's also not really written to be performed because all the stage directions are missing. Uh, so you have to make them up. But it's right. much better when it's performed than when you read it.
0: Precisely. Preci- which is why I never understood why everyone's like, oh, yes, well, I read Shakespeare. I'm like... Okay. It's great fun as an audiobook. I love listening to Shakespeare as an audiobook, but it's way better if you're watching it being performed. Mm -hmm. It's so much more fun. So if an appeal to Shakespeare, shall we say, if you have struggled with Shakespeare in the past, I totally understand because his English is technically it's modern English, but it's hard to understand for us. But I would encourage you to try either listening to it as like a radio play or watching it. Because it's just astoundingly good. It's fantastic. And I think actually now, was it the BBC? That it was one of the major theaters in England. might have been the BBC. Has now allowed you to watch all of their recorded performances. So you can go in and find these beautiful performances. I'll have to find it, but it's very cool.
1: And also for uh, all of you fandom members out there. I'm sure a lot of your favorite actors have been in Shakespeare, so you can look that up and enjoy it.
0: Yes. Fun fact, my favorite Shakespeare play has been Tom Hiddleston's performance in Coriolanus.
1: See, I didn't even know that was a thing.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Coriolanus is my favorite.
1: The same Shakespeare professor from undergrad showed us a lot of Patrick Stewart doing Shakespeare. She had a cardboard cutout of him in her office.
0: Patrick Stewart is fantastic. There's also a great rendition of Hamlet with David Tennant as Hamlet with Patrick Stewart as the uncle.
1: Ooh, that's really good.
0: Yeah, it's really good. And that one's on YouTube.
1: Not that I've seen it. I just think that's a good casting.
0: Oh, it is. It's fantastic. Okay, I found it. It's National Theatre at Home. So if you look up nationaltheatre.org.uk, you can find these available for streaming. Yeah, there is a price for it. It's It's like a streaming service like Netflix. Hang on. Anyway. You can look it up, listeners. It's very, very cool. I highly recommend it. With new plays added every month. And captions available. Even better. Okay. Anyway.
1: Oh, me tattoos.
0: Shall we jump into assembling a and d party?
1: Sure. If there's anyone to assemble. I'm not sure there is. We only have a handful of named characters. That's true. I do think the princess would make a good rogue, though.
0: Definitely. I think we need the princess, her best friend, mm-hmm. and Constant.
1: He's the bard.
0: Yeah, he's definitely charisma.
1: That's his only skill, apparently. No, he did well in school.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's smart. So he's, he's he smart. Ha- you
1: have to give him a decent intelligence score.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. But other than that.
1: Yeah, other than that, it is not clear if he has any redeeming qualities. Yeah. He's just pretty.
0: He's pretty. <laughs> I think that's about it.
1: Yeah. it's it's a it's a low party. You Ooh, maybe could party. bring in the abbot or the wise monk.
0: That's true. If you
1: need a cleric. Yeah. Or the astrologer from the beginning. The dad.
0: Oh yeah, the dad, that could work. Alright. The dungeon master's dictionary. We do have some cool words. We've do. got Castellan.
1: Yep. The governor of a castle.
0: And we have Testamentiferous. <laughs>
1: Yes, which is not in the story, <laughs> but is a good word.
0: We did find that word. And then also termagant. Yes. That's a fun word as well.
1: And a caitiff.
0: Ooh, caitiff. Yes, that's
1: right. A contemptible person.
0: Huzzah. Well, I guess not huzzah, but like, the. Right. Street smarts. Lessons from the text.
1: Your astrology chart is infallible.
0: Apparently, and also you better pay attention to it because it's gonna like run the course of your children's lives.
1: Mm-hmm. If you have to kill a baby, throw it into the sea yourself. Yeah, or cut out are If you're, if if a you're so
0: pissed, if you're so and you like really want to kill somebody, do it yourself, you coward. Yeah,
1: stop passing off your killing on other people.
0: Yeah, come on.
1: That's why Constant keeps surviving. Ugh. Oh. Bargain with physicians. So Bar- apparently, yeah, you can bargain. get a twenty percent discount.
0: Boom. I would also say. Make friends with nice princesses. Yes. They might do you a favor and you might get married to them.
1: And if all else fails, you can always fall back on your good looks, which apparently are the only thing that matters.
0: (laughs) Oh, to be a white straight male in the 13th century.
1: (laughs) Only a pretty one. Yeah, I guess. Ugly ones, people just leave them on the muck heap.
0: See, there's a good phrase.
1: There's a good phrase.
0: Leave it on the muck heap. All right.
1: Best moment.
0: Best moment in this whole thing.
1: I think my favorite moment is the princess acting like she doesn't want to do it and didn't expect the letter to say what it did. Like her her whole spiel, I think, was very well done.
0: Her acting performance. Yeah. I think so. That's, That's the best part.
1: I also kind of like her best friend egging her on. True.
0: Her whole little scene is fantastic. I also really like at the beginning, the opening scene is just you're riding through the city at night and there's a guy on a roof going, let my wife give birth. Don't let my wife give birth. Let her give birth. Like just the sheer what the hell factor Mm -hmm. is fantastic. Great way to open a story. Yeah. Even weirder when you realize he's like asking the stars.
1: Yeah, it's a very strange scene, but it's very, yeah, it's a good opening.
0: Good opening. Strong
1: hooks. Mm Mm-hmm. The court. You go first.
0: I want the princess.
1: I knew you were gonna take the princess.
0: I want the princess. She's smart. She's clever. She's got sway.
1: Yeah, yeah. She's the best <laughs> choice. All right. As my backup, I just des- I have decided to take the astrologer.
0: Fair enough. Not the king astrologer.
1: No, no. The caitiff astrologer. The
0: caitiff. <laughs> this is good it's a fun twist on the familiar tale it's not too long i'm gonna deduct some points for its weird anti-islamic tenor
1: i mean you're gonna get that in your medieval european
0: i know i'm still gonna deduct points
1: fair entirely fair.
0: (laughs) we don't have to sink to their level (laughs) Yeah, I'd say overall, I'd I'd give it a 7.5. That's pretty high. Yeah.
1: I think I'm only willing to give it a... eh, I'm not going to go quite as high as a 7.5. I'm going to give it a 6.5. All right. Similar reasons. I feel that a lot of these are, I guess, overdone tropes. Like, it it leans very hard on standard tropes. And... I find it very weird how much they keep talking about how pretty the boy is.
0: Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, that's really weird. All right. Uh,
1: Welcome to the Leech's Corner.
0: Shall we do some Hildegard? Let's. All right. Every stone contains fire and moisture. The devil abhors, detests, and disdains precious stones.
1: Does he now?
0: This is because he remembers that their beauty was manifest on him before he fell from the glory that God had given him and because some precious stones are engendered from fire in which he receives his punishment.
1: So he's angry with precious stones because God took his jewelry.
0: Yes. Okay. He used to be pretty, but now he's not. And also apparently because he doesn't like that they remind him of fire.
1: Right, because they're all full of fire, as she just said.
0: Right so precious stones and gems arise in the orient
1: all of them (laughs) apparently (laughs) oh it gets better do they make them in china
0: they very well could
1: or sorry Cathay.
0: yes in areas where the sun's heat is very great from the hot sun mountains there have heat as powerful as fire that is like volcanoes i guess the rivers in those areas always boil from the sun's great heat Whence at times an indonation of those rivers bursts forth and ascends through the scorching mountains. The mountains burning with the sun's heat are touched by the rivers. Froth, similar to that produced by hot iron or a hot stone when water is poured over it, exudes from the places where the water touches the fire. This froth adheres to that place and in three or four days hardens into stone.
1: Stones are hardened water from boiling rivers near hot mountains in Asia. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that sounds legit. I'll incorporate that into my belief system.
0: I mean, if you told me that different precious metals were made, or like, not, I guess not metals, but if you told me that gemstones and rock were created by the earth spitting up liquid fire that, when touching the air, turned into, like, a sapphire, it's it's just as crazy,
1: Look, it's only called liquid fire when it's below ground. When it's above ground, it's called a meteorite.
0: <laughs> I guess that's fair. All right, all right. Once the inundation has ceased and the waters have returned to the Do river, you mean the
1: inundation by the way? Yeah. Okay.
0: Inundation, that's what it says. All right. The inundation of water, the overwhelming of Oh, it can also mean flooding. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I know the word. I just thought you said indonation, and I I thought you'd swapped around some sounds.
0: Oh, I perhaps probably did. Who knows? Anyway, the froth dries up, and they take their colors and powers in accordance with the time of day and the temperature. Oh. Then they become precious stones and fall onto the sand, like flaking fish scales. (laughs) Who came up with this? I don't know. And then when, they, when the rivers flood again, the rivers lift them up and then carry them off to other countries where okay. they're discovered.
1: That, at least, th- I was wondering if this was going to be, like, and then traders gather them up and sell them. And there's some sort of gem monopoly off in the east.
0: <laughs> Not quite that bad. They do get, you know, rushed out onto the ends of the earth. And so, precious stones are born from fire and water, once they have fire and moisture in them. They contain many powers and are effective for many needs. Many things can be done with them, but only good, honest actions, which are beneficial to human beings, not activities of seduction, fornication, adultery, enmity, homicide, and the like, which tend toward vice and which are injurious to people. Huh. Crystals can only be used for healing.
1: You know, I have noticed that, you know, when you see those lists of what you can use crystals for, none of them have bad effects. Yeah. It never says, like... This crystal slows your spiritual development, or like, this crystal makes you bad at making decisions. It's always like, it'll, it'll hasten your spiritual development, it'll make you more yeah. decisive.
0: This is from Christian medievalism, you guys. But yes, they, they reject
1: vices. I think I saw a Tumblr post or something suggesting that some of the minerals that aren't sold in stores should be put in there with like little signs saying they do bad stuff so you'd buy them for your enemies.
0: That's funny. Uh, Let's see. Some stones do not originate from these mountains and are not of the same nature, but arise from other useless things. Through them, with God's permission, it is possible for good and bad things to happen. I
1: like that everything is with God's permission for Hildegard. I mean, I know she's a nun. She's
0: very devoted. (laughs) And then we get a little history lesson about Lucifer and how he fell.
1: Oh, do tell.
0: God had decorated the first angel as if with precious stones. Lucifer, upon seeing them shine in the mirror of divinity, took knowledge from them and recognized that God wished to do many wondrous things. His mind was exalted with pride, since the beauty of the stones which covered him shone in God. He thought that he could also do deeds, both equal and greater, to God's. And so his splendor was extinguished. But just as God restored Adam to a better part, he sent neither the beauty nor the power of those precious stones to perdition, but willed that they would be held in honor and blessing on earth and used for medicine.
1: So God gave Lucifer jewelry. Yes. Lucifer thought that the jewelry made him more powerful than God. Yes. So God took the jewelry back and then gave it out to humans.
0: Correct. Yes. Interesting. To be fair... This is not unlike the Silmarillion.
1: No, no, there's definitely some resonance there. Like this, yeah, the glowing Silmarils that corrupt.
0: Well, they weren't supposed to corrupt at first.
1: But they do because everyone, like, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Not crave, um, covet. Everyone covets them.
0: Yes, because they held the light of the two trees and then like Feanor made them or whatever and they were so pretty. And then Morgoth took them. And Fionnur was like, "Screw you! I I swear with my seven sons that I will get these back." And so they were the like sons cursed. Of <laughs> they were cursed to get the silver rules back. But yeah, everybody wanted them. So one was cast into the fires of Mordor, one was cast into the sea, and the third one is the Star of Arendelle. So next time you read The Lord of the Rings, when Frodo cries out, Ah, Elberel," that's what he's talking about. He's talking about this magic stone that is now a star in the sky. Anyway, our first gem is the Emerald.
1: I would not have expected that. I don't know how these are ordered, so I'll just go with it. Maybe they're in order of how pretty Hildegard thinks they are.
0: You know, I really like that as a thought.
1: Or maybe there's a great chain of being somewhere that says emeralds are the best stone. I don't know.
0: Who knows? But anyway, the emerald grows in the wee hours of the morning at sunrise.
1: I forgot that they're (laughs) based on time.
0: (laughs) I knew it was going
1: to come back. Wait, maybe that's how they're ordered.
0: I don't know. Let's find out. Okay, so emeralds are grown in the wee hours. Oh, maybe you're right. Oh, yeah, I think you're right, actually. All right, so the emerald grows first when the sun is powerfully placed in its orbit.
1: I mean, considering that this time thing is completely made up, like, I'm assuming that was tacked on later to justify what order they're in.
0: I have no idea. Maybe she knew this originally and then wrote it down. But anyway, at this time, in the wee hours of the morning, the natural vigor of the earth and grasses is especially lively. The air is still cold and the sun is hot. The herbs vigorously imbibe vitality as a lamb sucking milk
1: is this why the emerald is green because it's yes. full of chlorophyll
0: uh i think she's going to get there hang on let's let's find out
1: wait did the herbs are like a lamb sucking milk
0: yes cuz they suck up all the vitality of the earth
1: oh okay that's a weird uh simile
0: <laughs> yes it is Therefore, the emerald is powerful against all human weakness and sickness since the sun readies it, and since all of its matter is of the vitality of the air. It's like extra crisp in the dawn's early light. (laughs) Whence one who has ails in his heart, stomach, or side should have an emerald with him, it will heat up his flesh, making him better. If this person is so beset by pestilences which cannot restrain their commotions, What is a pestilence that cannot (laughs)
1: restrain its commotion? I don't know, but I love that phrase.
0: (laughs) Children is the answer, in my opinion.
1: Really noisy lice. Partying at all hours.
0: If he has one of these pestilences, he should place an emerald in his mouth so that it becomes wet from his saliva and the saliva heats up from the stone. He should then repeatedly place it on and take it from his body.
1: I'm skeptical about emeralds heating things.
0: Uh, yeah, I yeah, I I don't know what to say to that. I don't know if they. Bestie, have you up. ever
1: seen an emerald? <laughs> I'm sure there's a relic with one on. Um,
0: yeah, I mean she was like an abbess. Maybe she was wearing stuff with emeralds.
1: Yeah. I mean, but then she'd know that they don't heat up.
0: I I don't know if it's like a spiritual heating up. I don't know. We need a crystal expert. When someone tormented by epilepsy falls. Put an emerald in his mouth while he is lying on the ground. It will revive his spirit. So it, like, stops a seizure.
1: Is this like the bite on a wallet thing? I
0: guess, but there's more, because after he gets up and takes the stone from his mouth, he should look at it intently and say, Just as the breath of the Lord filled the whole earth, so may his grace fill the house of my body so that it can never be moved.
1: How do you know if you're looking intently enough?
0: You have to, like, really focus. (laughs) If you don't go cross-eyed,
1: you're not doing it right. Also, if it's a smallish emerald, as I assume that any that you'd have on hand would be, he's just gonna swallow it.
0: Yeah, I would be really
1: scared about that. Like no one's gonna have like a fist-sized emerald. Just
0: I wouldn't want to put a fist-sized emerald in anybody's mouth.
1: Well, it's too big to swallow.
0: Uh, Yeah, I guess. One who has a great pain in his head should hold it near his mouth and warm it up by his breath, so that it becomes yes.
1: Hold his head near his mouth?
0: Hold the emerald. (laughs) Oh. And breathe on it and then rub it so that, oh, he should rub it when it's dampened with his breath on his temples and his forehead. Then he should put it in his mouth and holding it in his mouth for a little while, he will be better. There's a lot of like gems in mouths
1: here. Someone's going to swallow those gems. You know? Happened to me with a coin when I was like five.
0: (sighs) Ugh. I just ate like grass.
1: I mean, I didn't mean to swallow it. I just liked holding them in my mouth. I like the copper taste.
0: Ugh. No, I didn't do that. Okay, someone who has much phlegm and saliva in him should heat good wine and put a linen linen cloth over a metallic vessel.
1: I want a linen clock.
0: (laughs) That would be a difficult clock to read. Then you put the emerald on the cloth and pour the warm wine over the stone so that the wine passes through the cloth and then do it again and again and then drink the wine Mixed with ground broad beans Mm. and then drink the wine itself. And then your phlegm and saliva will reduce.
2: Interesting that she
1: specifies which type of bean. I thought there was only one type of bean in medieval Europe.
0: Maybe it's just the the broad bean.
1: Yeah, but then why would it be called the broad bean as opposed to just the bean? Is there a narrow bean?
0: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, maybe for the same reason that like grain is also called cereal. There's a bunch of different words. Who knows? Okay, so here's the last one for the Emerald. If someone is being eaten by worms.
1: Oh, (laughs) that happens.
0: I don't know what kind of worms.
1: I, I know that this is supposed to be like, I guess like hookworms or something, but I can't help but picture earthworms just like nibbling on someone's feet.
0: I don't think that would be all that frustrating.
1: Maybe if there were a lot of them.
0: I feel like if it were like being eaten by maggots, I think that'd be really gross. Maybe those counted. I don't know. Anyway, if you're being eaten by worms, wow, he should place a linen cloth with an emerald on top over the wound. He should tie it over other small pieces of cloth so that the stone grows warm.
1: That probably is maggots, actually, because flies will lay their eggs in wounds. (sighs) It's actually good for you, though, because they only eat dead flesh. They used to use this as emergency medical treatment in, like, the 19th century. Ugh. But yeah, it cleans out the wound. I learned about this in American history class when we talked about the Civil War.
0: That's crazy. Ugh. I mean, I get that they only eat dead flesh, but, like, mm, not appealing.
1: Maybe this has been corrupted as it was passed down, and you're actually supposed to be paying them for their medical help with an emerald.
0: I like that thought. Just give him a little something something uh but i- I guess if you do that for three days, then the worms will die, so I think that has more to do with like suffocating the worms yeah. under the linen than the emerald, but you know whatever does it for you, Hildegard
1: also, I don't know how long maggots stay maggots; they might just turn into
2: flies after a few days
0: Ugh, gross, but that is the uses of an emerald All right, I think we ought to call it there, okay, well, you might want to. Look in your jewelry chest, see if you have any emeralds, and just keep them on hand, just in case.
1: But remember, no matter how many you have, it does not make you god. (laughs) True. (laughs) But it might make you pretty enough to be a servant of the emperor.
0: Who knows?
1: Or a varlet.
0: A varlet. That word keeps throwing me off. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, marginalia at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter at Maniculum and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project Sugar Glass on Spotify.
1: Yes, which there is a lot of. Excuse me. I don't know if you can hear that, but Delilah is barking.
0: She's making noise. She's telling you something.
1: She probably just feels like I'm not giving her enough attention right now. Oh. I'll be right back.
0: Alright. She probably needs a dentist.
1: Her tennis ball was wedged up against my nightstand, which is a problem she can solve, but she'd rather I do it for her.
0: Oh. I will say she only gets noisy when there's a problem or when she needs something. She's a very well-behaved dog.
1: Yes, no she she is very demanding but there is usually like a
2: clear a good demand. Reason. Fair enough.